It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. Tonight we bring you an International Women's Day one-hour special presentation in conjunction with Journalists for Human Rights on gender equality and women's rights in Kenya, recorded earlier today. We want to thank Journalists for Human Rights for allowing us to air this webinar, hosted by JHR's Executive Director, Rachel Palfer. Happy International Women's Day. This is a particularly special Women's Day because it is taking place uh, in a situation of COVID coronavirus and pandemic worldwide. And one of the big stories that has been emerging from the pandemic is the impact of the coronavirus on women and girls' rights. And the picture is not pretty, uh, but there are, uh, the good news is that there are things that uh, we can do about this situation uh, as societies, as journalists, as people who care about women and girls' rights. It is my very great honor today uh, to introduce you to two extraordinary women journalists who have played a very important leadership role when it comes to these questions. The first is Judy Caberia, and Judy is an award-winning multimedia journalist and media trainer uh, who works with Journalists for Human Rights in Kenya as our gender media trainer. Judy brings over 16 years of experience in journalism to the craft. Uh, She's a dedicated journalist with excellent spoken and verbal communication skills, and she has extensive knowledge, knowledge in global journalism, human rights, and media development in East Africa and in Africa writ large. She is a 2015 fellow of the prestigious Edward R. Murrow Program for Journalists in Washington. Uh, she's a media trainer for the professional development program of the Graduate School for Media and Communications at the Aga Khan University in Nairobi. And she's also been an international consultant with the United Nations Development Program on Journalism Training in South Sudan. Before all of this work, she worked as a journalist and later as an associate editor for Capital Group Limited, the proprietors of Capital FM. She's the board chair of Africa Czech Foundation in Kenya, a subsidiary of Africa Czech Trust, Africa's leading independent fact-checking organization. She regularly speaks on Kenya's mainstream media about journalism. And as it happens today, she is on the op-ed page in the Globe and Mail, right in the center, making sure that we are in Canada all aware about the impact of the coronavirus on women's and girls' rights in Kenya and what uh, we can all do about that situation. Uh, The second uh, extremely impressive journalist uh, that we will be bringing on this webinar today is Josephine Schmidt. Josephine is the uh, executive editor of The New Humanitarian uh, based in Geneva. She uh, joined in 2018 uh, as the first executive editor of The New Humanitarian. She is an experienced journalist, newsroom leader, and media strategist with over 17 years of international newsroom op-ed and editorial development experience at the New York Times. She has lived and worked in Asia, Europe, and North America, launching and managing multilingual websites, magazines, media, multimedia projects, breaking news coverage, and special projects on everything from culture to politics. She has also worked with heads of state, Nobel laureates, artists, dissidents, scientists, and business leaders to craft timely and impactful op-ed and analysis pieces. As the editorial lead of the New York Times News Service and Syndication Division, she oversaw the development and distribution of multi-platform content from the New York Times and other leading media companies to organizations around the world. 
She began her career, interestingly, in nonprofit media in post-communist Eastern Europe, where she helped to establish the region's first post-Soviet journalism training center, and she then played key roles in launching and leading Transitions, a website and magazine covering the politics, economy, and culture of 27 post-Soviet countries. Welcome, Judy and Josephine. And Judy, I'm wondering if we can start with you and if you could just uh, put this audience in the picture of what you have been doing just over the past week in the service of women and girls' rights in media in Kenya. Thank you very much, uh, Rachel, for this opportunity and putting this together. It comes at the right time uh, because we have a lot of issues that are affecting women and girls in this country. And uh, one of the main issues that actually led to the couple of activities that we had uh, last week and last week, but one, is underrepresentation of women in the news. In Kenya, we have less than 30% of women in editorial position, meaning that we have very few women who can decide what content goes, who is interviewed, and who is the most important in terms of the news coverage. And because of this low percentage of representation um, of, of, of women in the news, that's when we decided as JHR uh, through the Kenya Project, the Voice for Women and Girls' Rights, to put together a group of female journalists. And we started with the junior reporters who actually narrated the nasty experiences that they go through as news reporters. And they face a lot of harassment, sexual harassment, intimidation, and undermining of their professionalism, both within the newsroom and outside the newsroom. And after that, we had a second event where we involved a senior female journalists at the decision-making uh, table, and we were able actually to come uh, with a way forward. Uh, finally, I think we got it right into taking action and deciding how we respond to sexual harassment in the newsroom. And one of the recommendations is for us to have an ad hoc committee, which is independent from the newsroom, because recently we had a case of a young girl in her 20s, very young girl who faced sexual harassment. She broke down while with her on phone, uh, that is last week. And last week, but one, she came to this um, female journalist uh, meeting that we had. The entire room with around 15 women all broke down into tears. We just cried because of kind of violation she's been going through. And uh, finally, uh, through the support of JHR, we are able to say at least soon uh, we are going to give back to a baby that is going to respond to this menace. Amazing. It's amazing work. Thank you. Uh, Josephine, could you share with us a little bit about your work at New Humanitarian? Oh, with, with pleasure. And thank you, Rachel, for inviting uh, the New Humanitarian and myself um, to um, talk about issues that are very near to our work and our hearts on this International Women's Day. And Judy, thank you for sharing that story. I look forward to hearing more. Um, the, the New Humanitarian um, uh, is uh, celebrating now 26 years of journalism from the heart of humanitarian crises. Um, so we um, put our journalism at the service of people who are often um, enduring some of the most traumatic events of their lives. And we do that in the hope that our information will help um, inform the prevention of similar events um, and inform the response, humanitarian response to those events. Um, we're one of the few, if not only, independent not-for-profit newsrooms dedicated to reporting from the heart of, of humanitarian crises, which means we're on the ground around the world. Uh, we were in 70 countries last year. We're a tiny newsroom of about 10 full-time staff, uh, including our web developer and audience engagement editor. Um, and we work very closely with freelance contributors around the world, um, working uh, uh, with 
local journalists who are able to really get us the story from the inside out. Um, we report on everything from conflict um, and post-conflict zones to displacement situations arising from conflict, such as those in Syria or South Sudan, or climate refugees, uh, to economic and political migrants, uh, such as uh, people who are in the midst of the situation on the um, Colombia-Venezuela border, or the U.S. border, for that matter. Um, we also cover natural hazards arising from storms, earthquakes, health emergencies, the Ebola outbreak in Congo, and um, that pandemic that uh, has taken over all of our lives. Um, and uh, we do all of that with the hope of, uh, of really uh, amplifying the voices at the people who are at the hearts of these crises. Um, for a sense of what we cover, um, if you uh, go to our site, you can take a look at our annual 10, 10 crises and trends to watch in 2021 list. Um, it's a list we put together every year. Um, this year, of course, many of those trends were informed, shaped by the pandemic. So we had, um, as always, a few um, uh, uh, events that were very geographic in nature, everything from um, Ethiopia and the unrest in Tigray and elsewhere to Yemen, which still holds the uh, sad moniker of the world's worst humanitarian crisis, but also to broader trends, such as um, uh, food insecurity being fueled by rising prices and, of course, the fallout of the pandemic, um, to rollbacks and in fighting infectious diseases, again, um, uh, pointing to the pandemic as a culprit because va vaccination programs and simple access to health care have become more difficult. And this year, one of our uh, 10 crises is the added toll that COVID is taking on women and girls. So our, our coverage of women and girls is, um, is really quite centered in our work. That is uh, incredibly important work that you're doing. Uh, and I hope that later in the conversation, you can share a little bit about the She Said uh, yes. segment you've been leading uh, at the New Humanitarian. And I hope that for this audience, if you hadn't heard of the New Humanitarian before, please do check out the website. Uh, it's a really, really interesting news organization spun out of the U.S. Iran News uh, News Service uh, that is now uh, working uh, extremely hard to hold uh, the humanitarian system to account uh, to ensure that the voices of those who, in theory, are the beneficiaries but are often left out of the conversation about how to engage with humanitarian crises, <clears throat> that they are at the center of coverage and that their voices are leading uh, in terms of what needs to be done uh, in the places where they are uh, coping with uh, extreme circumstances. Uh, so thank you very much, Josephine, and we'll hear more shortly, uh, but I'm going to turn back to Judy for a minute. And uh, Judy, could you share with us a little bit, uh, you alluded to it a little bit uh, in your opening remarks, um, what has been the impact of the coronavirus on women working in the media in Kenya? You you've mentioned that, you know, the statistics are already not good, 30%, less than 30% uh, uh, of women working uh, in decision-making roles. Um, but what, uh, what has this all meant in terms of uh, women's ability to work in media in Kenya? Yes, um, actually, up to now, we are grappling with the massive job losses, especially among female journalists, because when Corona came, um, over 400 journalists lost their jobs. Unfortunately, majority of these journalists are female journalists. And uh, one of the reasons that is used to target on female journalists is about, is she likely to get married? Is she likely to be pregnant? Is she likely to take maternity leave? There's nothing professional that is looked at a woman when she's supposed to be laid off. 
and because of uh, you know being a woman that is why they become the almost obvious uh, target and um we've lo- we've ended up losing very good journalists and i can tell you from experience when a woman uh, is in the newsroom first they're given softer subject you know launch of a soap launch of you know t-shirt or something of the sort and so it becomes very difficult to climb her way uh, up there and the biggest challenge of course is like sexual harassment and this form of intimidation if somebody is facing sexual harassment or is being undermined at work then it means their performance will be quite low if their performance is quite low then this woman cannot get to the top level and that's why we have a lot of women leaving the newsrooms prematurely others underperform yet they have the capability to perform and this is why uh, through jhr we really hope that uh, the kind of effort that we are employing in the programs that we have including training female journalists because in all our trainings we always ensure majority of the beneficiaries are women and actually we've had uh, fantastic story proposals that uh, women are sending to us and for us this is a win-win situation because apart from uh, you know empowering the women with the skills and the knowledge especially to report from a human rights um, perspective and also to inject um, gender sensitivity in reporting we hope this is also going to close the gaps because again when we look at uh, how women are covered in media we see a lot of stereotyping we see women not recognized as uh, new sources because again we have like only 30% 35% of women are regarded as uh, sources whereas we have fantastic women who've done fantastic things in this country but for some reason you just find that the coverage of these women is quite low in the media but we hope through this kind of training that we are offering at JHR we are likely to see a change because most of the stories that have come forward are looking at issues of uh, underage pregnancies teen mothers um female genital mutilation and I'll discuss this later as we move forward uh, because these are some of the serious things that we think that have already taken us really back when you talk about empowering girls and women and um actually for us covid-19 has been like the shadow pandemic uh, that uh, unfortunately is not being given the seriousness in terms of resources the time and the programs that are being designed all themes that uh, i've heard echoed around the world in some of our other programs chudi but thank you for crystallizing them so uh, effectively you're listening to element fm in toronto and ottawa this is a one hour international women's day special presentation here on moment of truth uh, josephine uh, uh, what have you been uh, experiencing and seeing in your networks uh, in terms of how coronavirus has affected women's ability to work in media yeah well Judy, the story you tell is very familiar because I think it's happening around the world uh, when we talk about um, large layoffs and um, salary cutbacks and even wholesale shuttering of, of media outlets um, with um, women losing jobs. And as they lose jobs, they lose voice. And as they lose voice, um, the, um, the access to women's stories and information on women's issues diminishes greatly. Um, I think um, for for women who were already under underrepresented in the media to begin with, both in terms of workforce, the number of women journalists, and in terms of um, representation as sources and stories, um, um, it's it's an especially fraught time um, because as um, as as Judy mentioned earlier, um, not only uh, do um, women in media um, 
tell stories, tell, um, tell stories. They also look at how those stories are told. And so when you lose women in media, you lose the gatekeepers of what, of what is the news, what is worth telling. Um, and, um, to me, that means that those of us who are fortunate, still fortunate to be able to play an active part in the media, it's imperative to double down on our commitment to amplifying the voices of of women, both in the topics we choose to report and the way in which we 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 report those stories. Um, uh, there's a, a a line from um, the Op-Ed Project, which is a project that's dedicated to uh, to helping to ensure there are more more women's voices in um, on the opinion pages of media sites around the world. And their line is, "Whoever tells the story writes history." And if we're in a moment now when when there are fewer women in the media workforce, there's a whole different story that's going to be told than the story that is really happening out there. It's a great line. Uh, uh, and uh, that's great work, uh, the op-ed project. Please, everybody take note. Um, there's also an organization called Informed Opinions that does similar work in Canada, uh, really, really valuable work. And if uh, there are news uh, uh, editors and directors uh, out there watching this webinar, please check out both of those projects because uh, one of the goals here is to ensure that we have more women uh, being quoted as sources and as experts uh, and being featured uh, in order to ensure that those uh, those narratives are shared and that uh, women's perspectives are better understood um, and uh, better uh, working to frame the experiences that we're going through. Uh, and the situation in Canada is no different. An RBC study came out late last week that indicated that over 100,000 women have left the work workforce uh, of, working, um, uh, of working age. Uh, the figure is 10 times smaller than men. And to be clear, to be clear, we're not saying in this webinar that men have not suffered in the course of the pandemic. Of course they have. Everyone is suffering as a result of this pandemic. But the impact, at least in Canada, based on these numbers from RBC, uh, is 10 times greater in terms of the numbers of women who have left the workforce, whether it has been because they've been pushed out, because they, to your point, Judy, there is this uh, situation where um, uh, uh, often there's an assumption that there's a boyfriend or a husband or some sort of other support uh, that the woman can rely on, uh, and therefore her job is less uh, important and less uh, necessary to protect, uh, or a scenario where women are um, simply facing uh, other problems. Um, um, but uh, in any event, uh, let's move on to the next topic. And uh, Judy, uh, if you could share with us a little bit about what the broader impact of the coronavirus has been on women and girls' rights uh, in Kenya. Yeah, um, Rachel, um, actually COVID-19 just showed us the ugly face of violations against girls and women. Uh, working as a journalist reporting on human trafficking, I just uh, came, uh, you know, very close to incidences that I think I'll never forget in my life. You know, seeing very young girls at the age of 11, pregnant, you know, and worried how they are going to give birth and not even understanding or even not knowing who the father of the child is. And, um, you know, even the innocence or even trying to understand what happened to them. Some of these images I'll never forget. And um, I keep on remembering this girl who has just turned 11 and now she's a mother taking care of, a child taking care of a child, a child breastfeeding a child. And her education has been cut short. She probably may never go back to school, but I hope uh, someday we'll be able to rally some CSOs to be able to get her back to school. And this is the first time actually, I thought my role uh, as a journalist went beyond reporting 
trying to become like uh, the police or uh, you know a lawyer or something because some of the things that I saw didn't allow me as a human being just write a story and walk away. It went to you know trying to follow up, get justice, get them into a shelter house, get them you know some sort of support, some food, some clothes. This is what it changed from becoming a journalist to becoming like sort of a humanitarian and law and everything else. And the second story that I'll never forget is this four-year-old girl who was defiled. He only four at the age of four. And I tried my best going to the children's officer, trying to get her, just trying to get this guy behind bars. And up to now, this file is gathering dust at the police station. And these are just a few of the cases that we saw because by June 2020, schools closed uh, in Kenya on, uh, in March 2020. By June 2020, we had about 152,000 girls who are pregnant. You know, these are pregnant girls. And one of the things that I have to warn you about Kenya is that this data is quite insufficient. It doesn't capture everybody because it only captures the people either who go to a health center or people who report to the police. Unfortunately, most of these cases are not uh, reported. Only now, an, an upsurge of uh, backdoor abortions has also been reported. And this, again, what does it mean for young girls? You can imagine girls taking um, some uh, detergents, taking a whole bottle for the fetus to come out, or a girl who decides she can lie on her back and have women step on her stomach for the fetus to go out. These are kind of sad stories that we are dealing with. Others who have to use twigs and knives to try and bring out the fetus. And as a result of that, we are losing the girls, the unborn babies, and some of them have got, you know, physical and emotional uh, trauma that will never walk away. Just early this month, on 1st of, um, 1st of March, the government again has sent more alarming news. Just one county, in Kenya we have 47 counties, and just one county has recorded 10,000 girls who became pregnant again. This is where in March. So you can see the ugly face that we're talking about that COVID-19 has showed us. It's just, um, you know, a sorry state. And this means that all the gains that we made before COVID, unfortunately, most of them have uh, been undone. As we talk now, Rachel, the reality is some of the girls are still stuck with their perpetrators. Some of them are commodified. After they were impregnated, the perpetrator was asked, if you pay us this amount of money, just give us a sheep or a goat and a cow, and you can marry this girl, she can become your wife. So we have 10-year-olds, 12-year-olds, 13-year-olds, serving as wives of some old men. And this goes uh, silently because of cultural values, because of historical injustices that we've never addressed boldly by you know, rebuking our cultural backgrounds. And again, we have a lot of girls who have, got, have gone through female genital mutilation. You can imagine a society that believes a woman cannot become complete if we don't take away a piece of her body flesh away from her. You can imagine that. And this is a society that thinks that we either take a bit of it or the all of it for them to become a woman. And this is the sad reality during COVID. Again, this have escalated. We were hoping like in Kenya, for example, by 2020, we'll eradicate female genital mutilation. But now we are dealing with another crisis where the numbers have gone up and people have gone back uh, you know, to practicing female genital mutilation. But today, I also applaud the, the, the brave women in communities that have decided to call off this kind of backward culture and led the war against female genital mutilation. Today, I celebrate them because I know people, the likes of Josephine Kulea, 
who has started a rescue center of saving girls from, uh, you know, underage marriages, from female genital mutilation, and giving them education to continue. And I celebrate her because some of the girls have even graduated with degrees, masters, and all that. So at the same time, yes, this is a downside of it. And we also have another woman who's just opened a school uh, in Nyeri, not far from here uh, in, in, in Nairobi. And this school is giving hope and providing education to teen mothers, some with their babies and taking care of the women, uh, of the, the children and the girls. So at the same time, yes, there are these hurdles that we are facing, but we have a lot of brave women who've taken this head-on collision and provided solution. Um, it, it's so sad that even these girls who have been exposed, their vulnerability has shot up. They are more exposed to further, you know, victimization, to further sexual abuse, child exploitation. All these numbers have escalated because even their mothers lost their jobs, their fathers lost their jobs. So they are forced to go and work as house girls at the risk of, you know, violating their rights to education and their rights to enjoy their childhood. That is the sad state we are in. And um, I don't know how long we have to deal with this, but uh, one thing that I know, the power of the media, a lot of what we are doing at JHR, I know some of these stories will be able to raise, uh, you know, the issues that have not been addressed to try and remove some of these hurdles from our young girls. Oh. Wow, Judy, what an experience. What a situation that you've been uh, navigating and these extraordinary stories that you've been telling and sharing and engaging with on a human level as well as on the level of being a journalist. And I know that that can be uh, challenging uh, uh, and uh, complex. Uh, and sometimes uh, there are questions where you, you want to make sure that not only is the story told, but that justice is done. And that is a very complex uh, line to navigate. Um, uh, more to ask you about shortly. Uh, but Josephine, I wonder if you can share what you've seen from your uh, position as the executive editor of New Humanitarian, looking at all these crises around the world. Uh, what are you seeing in terms of the impact of COVID-19 on women and girls' rights? Sure. Um, well, at the New Humanitarian, we um, we cover crises and um, vulnerable communities day in day out as our bread and butter. And um, as the um, as the global pandemic took hold last March, uh, we began thinking about how once again women were going to be getting the short end of the stick, as it were. Um, they already um, in humanitarian crises often bear a disproportionate burden in that they are navigating dangers, they're navigating scarcity, um, they're also often um, in, in charge single-handedly of caring for children, feeding children, looking after their safety, etc. Um, and that all of those challenges were going to be much magnified by the pandemic. Um, so uh, we w wanted to, to think about how could we really focus, really bear down on their stories and on what women were experiencing. We already do um, um, quite a lot of women-centered storytelling, um, as our um, brilliant investigative editor, Paisley Dodds, pointed out. And um, she suggested that we uh, uh, spend uh, some time really finding women and asking them how they are experiencing the pandemic. So that um, led to our launching the She Said series, um, Women's Lives, Women's Voices. And the point of this series is to um, uh, have 
women tell stories in their own words. So it's not only the stories we tell, which are stories that um, are their stories, but that they, they are told through their words and through their voices, that we're not picking out um, a woman and representing her as a victim, as a refugee, as some, as someone who is waiting for something to happen. We are representing her, talking to her, having her tell her story in an active way. Um, so for us, that means that throughout 2020, um, we saw many of the things that um, that Judy mentioned. Um, everything from, of course, uh, an increase in GBV, which there's been plenty of media attention around the world to this, as, of course, the entire world has become a crisis situation, really, for the first time in my memory, perhaps in all of our memory. Um, but for women in vulnerable situations, this was amplified by the fact that, they, that women who were living in refugee camps or in small displaced communities were at times confined with their abusers, or if not with their abusers, near their abusers. Um, there was no access to helplines because the people who were manning those helplines were no longer working or safe houses were shut down because of movement restrictions. Um, access to healthcare um, was, was more difficult as well. So for women who were abused, it was difficult for them to get help. Um, there was, we saw a great amount, of course, of economic hardship that for women who are living in fragile and, and vulnerable communities, could tip them into poverty, tip them into food security, meaning really that they, there is not enough for their kids to eat, um, uh, malnourishment take, takes hold, and futures are, are severely hobbled. Um, access to health care uh, with lack of access, maternal and infant mortality rates in fragile societies were at risk of increasing. Um, we, we looked at, uh, we spoke to some women in Nepal who uh, were, um, were caught in a situation where more and more were, uh, were having, were giving birth at home. And that was, of course, increasing um, uh, chances of danger, increasing um, maternal maternity, um, maternal mortality rates, etc. Um, we also uh, looked at uh, um, instances of that led to loss of education. Uh, children, girls could no longer go to school either because because of, um, of mobility restrictions or because of lack of income. Their families no longer had jobs. They couldn't pay fees. Um, when that happens, um, as we know, um, child marriage increases. Uh, we had a story out of Cameroon that one of our very intrepid, uh, one of our very intrepid young journalists uh, did. It, it required a 24-hour bus ride, uh, of, of course, winning the trust of, of young girls, uh, one of whom had been married off at 16 because her father, who was a herder, um, did not want another mouth to feed. He had, had lost income and um, she would not be returning to school when the schools opened again. Um, and one thing that we saw over and over again is that for many women around the, the world, COVID-19 did not re represent one problem or one challenge to overcome. What it did was it amplified existing challenges and um, just made everything that much harder. Yeah, I think that's a really insightful and important point. There was, there's been this sort of cascading effect where uh, situations where 
a woman, for example, had a tenuous hold on a job uh, and then she had to homeschool her kid as well as work from home or other types of uh, accommodations that needed to be made. And it just made it that much, just made it that much harder to, uh, to hold on to uh, those positions, let alone thrive in them. Uh, and, uh, and meanwhile, we're seeing all these other cascading effects as women and girls uh, leave formal workplaces, leave education uh, and, uh, and uh, become ever more vulnerable to situations such as um, uh, child marriage, such as being trafficked. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. This is a one-hour International Women's Day special presentation here on Moment of Truth. Don't go away. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth's International Women's Day one-hour special hosted by journalists for Human Rights Executive Director Rachel Pulfer. Judy, I know you've done a lot of work on the issue of human trafficking in particular. I'm wondering if you can share for this audience uh, some examples of the work that you did and the impact that it had. Uh, Just on the theme of, you know, whilst this is all terrible, it also means that there's an awful lot that we can do, uh, both as journalists and uh, Josephine and I sitting in our roles in the international community, uh, things that we can do. Um, uh, But if you could share what you did in uh, in Kenya with your coverage of human trafficking uh, for this audience, that would be great. Yes, um, when uh, COVID was first announced in Kenya in March, um, one of the things actually I realized was, uh, I received was a distress call uh, from a girl who got my number from some security officer. And she told me that they were locked up uh, in some, you know, a small tiny room in one of the slums, not far, uh, just a few, mit- I mean, a few kilometers away from Nairobi. And it was like 29 girls uh, together in one room. When I actually entered there, I just found them sleeping on the floor. They had not eaten for several days. Some were sick. They didn't have access to education. But the agent had already locked them inside and left. So the police came and they, they, they rescued them. And by the time they were rescuing them, uh, we had uh, travel restrictions across the country. So these women, majority of them are not able to travel because they come from the, the remote parts of the country. And some of them were arrested in that process. So you can imagine now, would I go write the story or would I first try to get them, you know, um, get them clearance for them to travel? So again, I started calling the police officers, the connection that I had, and at least we managed to get them together with the CSO as well. We had very good uh, CSOs. And together, we were able to push for them to be allowed to travel uh, back to where they came from. And I did that story. And at the same time, I was still receiving more calls from uh, Kenyans who were trapped in the Middle East. We had some Kenyans in Lebanon and Saudi Arabia. They were kicked out of where they were working and thrown to the streets. And uh, most of them do not have travel documents with them. The moment they get to where they were trapped, they exploited um, uh, slavery, sex exploitation, torture, and so many other violations that happen to them. And they're like slaves because without any identification or travel documents, you can't go anywhere. So again, we started, uh, uh, I wrote that story and I got calls from the immigration department. And again, together with the CSOs, we were able to try and repatriate some of them. It took a very long time, but through the pressure of the articles that I wrote, there was a lot of response and I would get calls from the immigration ministry, from the CSOs, and at the same time, we're doing a lot of outreach. I'll go and talk to the younger women to try and tell them, you know, they have to be very careful, especially when they are promised jobs, because 
traffickers uh, target vulnerable people in the community. And that's why now with COVID-19 and women having lost their financial muscle, most of them are now vulnerable. And that's why I wrote another story where I warned about an upsurge of, uh, you know, human trafficking because we have more vulnerable women who are being targeted by these uh, traffickers. The second story that I interacted with is um, some girls from Nepal and India who had been trafficked in Kenya and they were recruited into something they call Mujra dancers. So Mujra dancers, it's where young uh, women are forced to dance and are exposed. Anybody is free to pick them up and go do with them whatever they want. So when these girls were rescued, I found them in a police cell. They were held as criminals. So this is where instead of giving uh, victims uh, the support that they require, a rescue center, psychosocial support, you know, taking care of them, they're further violated. You can imagine I rescue a victim and instead of me taking them, you know, where they're supposed to be, I rode them into the police cell. So again, we employed a, employed a lot of pressure. There was a press conference that was done by one of the CSOs that I was working with. I covered the story and we demanded for their release and repatriation. Again, I then wrote a story about lack of shelters in Kenya because when you rescue people, you have nowhere to take them. We had incidences where a nurse treated um, uh, a victim and she didn't have anywhere to go. So the nurse decided, let me just go with her because I have nowhere to take her to. And so many people, individuals just offer, let me just go with these kids because I can't let them go back. Because the other scenario is letting them go back to the perpetrator, somebody who had trafficked them. That's another scenario that is there. So after I did this story about lack of shelters, and also I showed the procedural and structural hurdles that, uh, you know, block the justice system, there was a response. And uh, the response was very positive because I sat at the committee that was deliberating about establishment of uh, shelters especially to cater for victims of human trafficking. Because another thing that I highlighted in my story was that if we don't put these uh, survivors somewhere, then it means the case cannot succeed in court. Because how will the case succeed in court when you don't have any complaint coming forward? So we pushed, and I'm, hope, I'm happy that um, there's a lot of progress uh, in that. Uh, we already had uh, one of the shelter houses launched, um, which is a public one in one of the counties not far from here. And the government is making plans to have more of that done. And what I like is that they recognize the fact that uh, I was a whistleblower of this, uh, you know, uh, structural um, uh, challenge that was, uh, you know, violating the survivor's father. And um, a lot of uh, reforms have also gone uh, through the immigration uh, laws, especially concerning the workers moving to Saudi Arabia and Lebanon, because there are a lot of inconsistencies within the law that expose uh, the girls to further violation. And so we hope very soon this will, uh, you know, go forward and the minister keeps on telling me, we are working on it, Judy, we are working on it, Judy. And this is why I, I really like what I do, especially passing this kind of impact and solution-oriented journalism to the journalists that we are dealing with. And actually this is what we are encouraging right away. I mean, right now with the kind of uh, grants that we are offering to journalists, where journalists, um, you know, write stories based on issues and not just a matter of sensationalization or not a matter of winning an, a, an award, but it's about making a change in the society, influence uh, policies, to promote our discourse, to create awareness. And for me, this is the true meaning of journalism. And I'm happy this is exactly what we are doing as uh, the Voice for Women and Girls' Rights Kenya, which is the JHR uh, project. And, I, 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 and one thing that I also like, Rachel, is that also we are working with the groups uh, from the grassroots. These are the community media houses. 
because this is where a lot of these violations take place. When you talk about gender-based violence, these violations are taking place at high rates. And unfortunately, this is a group of population that are not aware about their rights being violated. In the first place, they don't even know it's a violation that is being, uh, you know, um, done to them. And because of the kind of work that we are doing the community media, they are able to have, uh, you know, live and feedback from the people. And we've already had fantastic on-air shows supported by Boys for Women and Girls' Rights uh, through Journalists for Human Rights. And actually, there's a lot of feedback because these things can finally be discussed. And uh, by having a discussion, it means us changing the policies to address the kind of challenges that women and girls are facing in this country. Mobilizing media to change Love it. Uh, it's a, and it's a, a fundamental trope of the way that Journalists for Human Rights works. I remember when we were in Sierra Leone, we worked with uh, rural radio stations, a transistor in a tree kind of scenarios uh, in order to do stories on domestic violence uh, because the war was over in Sierra Leone for the men, <laughs> but for the women, it had only just begun as they started to absorb all the post-traumatic stress uh, of the men that the men were bringing back from, from the conflict. Uh, and uh, so we had one journalist, Aisata Kamara, who worked with a Ugandan trainer, Andrew Iwoku, uh, on uh, putting a human face on what that did to families, like what domestic violence could do to, to, to families in these communities. Uh, and I remember there was this... Uh, there was this uh, network of tribal councils. Uh, we had mentioned that there was Domestic Violence Act in Sierra Leone. It had been passed in 2007. It was quite progressive in terms of supporting women's and children's rights in a domestic violence situation. And the tribal councils network uh, indicated that they uh, took it upon themselves as their responsibility to enforce that legislation that they had not known about before uh, this uh, journalism was, uh, was done. Uh, excellent. Um, very powerful work. Thank you, Judy. Uh, it is really an honor to work with uh, an individual of your caliber, and I'm so grateful that we're able to showcase uh, the work that you've been doing with the Kenya team in this way. Uh, Josephine, I'm wondering if you can share your thoughts in terms of uh, what is the role of journalists? Uh, how can journalists lead uh, in this moment where we're seeing uh, you know, this cratering of women's uh, access to employment opportunity, other impacts on women's rights and women's and girls' rights. What can journalists do uh, to address the situation? Yeah, I, um, I, I uh, have three thoughts I'd like to share. Uh, and uh, I think that they are all um, ways that we can perhaps, um, if not, mitigate, at least draw, draw attention to and um, create awareness of some of the challenges women, especially women in vulnerable situations, are facing during COVID-19, as well as uh, those ongoing impacts of uh, societal, political, economic assumptions and expectations around the lives of women and girls. So um, the first is uh, to challenge dominant narratives about women's roles, about women's abilities, about their hopes. Um, that's good practice for any journalist anywhere, really. Avoid assumptions, avoid the expected narrative, avoid the easy cause and effect explanations. Um, to, to us at the, at the New Humanitarian, nuance clearly articulated is a powerful, powerful tool. Um, what we find time and again is uh, if you go in and you're absolutely curious uh, and you're looking at not only what did happen, but what could happen uh, and um, uh, uh, why what happened uh, took place, um, you get a much, much, much 
better story. Uh, one example is um, uh, an, another one of our fabulous uh, journalist, Stephanie Glinsky in, uh, in Afghanistan, um, had noticed that um, there, was, there were very few women um, uh, who were in uh, data on COVID, in, COVID infections. Um, and um, rather than thinking, oh, no women are, um, are contracting this, um, she did a little digging, went to, went to hospitals, et cetera. And what it turned out was women were simply not going to be tested. They were not going to hospitals because it was... A, Culturally, it was very difficult for them to travel. They couldn't travel alone. Their, their husbands or male relatives did not want to travel. And so basically half of the population was, um, was cut out of any sort of data. Um, and that's a story we got by really asking what's not there and what's missing. Um, second, I think uh, now is the time more than ever to use our reporting, our voice as the media to hold those in power accountable, um, to ask the hard questions and to follow up um, and to do that in a non-combative and fact-based manner, uh, one that's fueled by conviction and what we at the New Humanitarian often like to think of as calm moral outrage. <laughs> Yet, calm moral outrage that's firmly rooted in on-the-ground reporting data and clearly sourced facts. Um, one example I, I can share, which is not, um, not COVID-related, but certainly um, women-focused, is our investigations on uh, sexual exploitation and abuse in the Ebola response in Congo. Um, this uh, was a project that was led and, and is, being, is still being led. We're, we're doing a series of stories um, on what, uh, what appear to be sex for work schemes um, during the two years uh, that um, aid workers were responding to the needs of communities that, that um, were at the center of, of the Ebola outbreak. Um, so in, um, and the... Um, the impact of that was that after publishing our story, which was an investigation we did with Thomson Reuters Foundation, in which we had more than 50 women um, sharing their experiences um, in, in these sex for work schemes, um, the president's office of DRC sought out a call with us to hear more about what had happened. Um, World Health Organization, um, I think, uh, close to 30 of the women um, uh, said that the men who, um, uh, uh, who with whom they were in contact were from the World Health Organization. So WHO, the UN's children, Children's Agency, and um, a handful of other NGOs pledged investi investigations into these accusations on reporters' findings. These are investigations that we're following up on. The UN Victims Advocate um, made a statement and um, and committed to making plans to support the victims, etc. Um, our our reporters spoke before the UK Parliament International Development Committee's inquiry into sexual exploitation and abuse in the aid sector, um, etc. So, uh, if one uh, holds those in power to account, uh, things can happen. Change change can happen. Um, and finally. Um, I think now is the time when we really need to make a commitment to assist women in amplifying their voices, to telling their stories, to ensuring that their stories are heard, and to ensuring that, um, that, that 
women, again, are allowed to be and are seen as um, as people who are in power of their lives, who are who who uh, can take action. Um, one one example I, I'd like to share is that uh, in our reporting um, on the the um, the communities of, of Venezuelans who were living along the Colombian border, we, we had a story that came in, which was a great story in showing the sort of pile up and add on um, challenges that the pandemic presented to people who were already living in a, in a in very fragile circumstances. Um, the story opened um, uh, saying that um, one young Venezuelan woman could uh, she could no longer make food or so she was struggling to feed her kids, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. But in fact, what she was doing was because she couldn't do these jobs, she had started selling ice. And to me, this was an incredible uh, story of power that this woman who could no longer sell food because people be, be, because she could not go and get the ingredients. She could no longer take in, in sewing because um, mobility was limited. She started selling ice in her neighborhood in order to have enough money to pay her rent and feed her kids. And we then framed our story with her. Um, in that position rather than in the position of a victim who was sadly, you know, had less than she had before. So I think that type of framing, that type of story where we're really sort of putting the power in the hands of the women, not in a Pollyannish, oh, everything is great way, but in a way that looks toward what is possible can be tremendously powerful. Incredible. Fantastic example. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. This is a one-hour International Women's Day special presentation here on Moment of Truth. This has been an extremely powerful conversation thus far, uh, and there's more to come. Uh, There's questions now that are coming in from the audience. So I'm going to direct the first question at you, Judy. Um, And then, uh, Josephine, if you want to jump in, Um, uh, there's a stereotype that women are their own enemies of progress um, that is quite commonly held. How how can we uh, demystify this uh, in storytelling and avert more harm to women journalists? You know, that that stereotype that, that she, you know, it's always the woman's fault in some way, shape or form. If a situation is happening, somehow she is somehow responsible for it. And she's held to a standard that's usually three to four times higher than men in terms of holding that responsibility and then that shame um, uh, in whatever it is that has happened to her. Um, so what, what can we do to, uh, to upend that particular stereotype that women are enemies? Yeah. Um, one of the things that I'm happy with, uh, we are already doing at uh, the Voice for Women and Girls Rights Kenya, is to train uh, journalists, university student, students studying journalism and CSOs on gender responsive uh, reporting. And some of the things that actually we are uh, highlighting where during the trainings is to focus on those issues, like that women are their own enemies, uh, you know. These are some of the things that actually we've been using examples because actually this is the weapon that has always been used to fight women, especially when they say they want to vie for, you know, elective seats. And whenever they say that, the men start saying they cannot support a woman because women are their worst own enemies. And uh, through this kind of training that we are doing, it's at university levels. And one of the things that we are doing when we capture university students who are joining the media industry in a few years, 
they already come with you know a more um, aware mindset a more changed mindset because at an early stage they already to, they they already they already know some of the terminologies and kind of stereotyping that is used to undermine women especially and we've been also identifying some of the you know uh, phrases that are used again to look down at women for example if somebody is uh, driving recklessly or somebody doesn't have a huge crowd they're saying this one is like a woman and so this goes on and on and this is what is just against uh, women when they're vying for political seats and through this kind of reporting especially on gender responsive reporting journalists can even be able to know what is gender because when you started reporting a lot of journalists thought gender is supposed to be women so we have again to be training them to differentiate between what is gender what is sex and this has really worked um uh, very well and uh, my colleague Winnie Yombua is very good at it and actually she's managed to do this because she come from a human rights um background and she's able to do that another thing of course that is done by my colleagues uh, for example Mustafa Ndumbuya is to talk about rights media and the rights media we have panel and this panel shows when a story is covered you know issues of accountability participation to ensure that uh, all voices are represented and covered in the right way are you know uh, we see this reflected in the news content because we have a scenario where a woman is asked how do you balance uh, becoming a politician and a family but the same question cannot be directed to a man yet a man is also a family man so through this kind of training that we are giving to journalists and actually I'm happy because in some of the stories we are getting already we can see the impact of this kind of training. Josephine, what are your thoughts? Yeah, uh, well I I I would just like to add that I think um uh we need to be very precise about the the language we use when um when telling these stories i mean even down to do we use victim do we use survivor of course in the humanitarian world you know the 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 common terms are recipients and and beneficiaries for people who um uh would uh would uh who are basically the clients of aid um recipients and beneficiaries are not very empowering words at all so how do we take a a, a more level-headed or I might even say compassionate um um point of view when we are telling the story and also I think we also need to think about who is telling the story in terms of when one is looking for voices of authority who are we going to uh to be those voices of authority um are we taking a 360 degree look at the situation or are we just sort of plugging in you know um a representative from this organization and a re- and 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 a, and someone from the authorities who will speak who often more, more often than not are men so i think we'd be very careful about the language we use and who are we asking to help tell the story yeah but and you raise an interesting point uh that i know is a, a trope of the the training work that judy and her team are doing in kenya judy can you speak to the role of men we always we talk about women's day we talk about women's issues we talk about women and girls rights um and often in all the language of women's gr- and girls rights and issues uh we occlude the role of men <laughs> um what is uh constructively speaking the role that men can play here um in uh in uh in this work yes um when we talk about equality um this work cannot be won by only women alone and um, it's it's been very interesting actually to see men t- take a step forward and actually stand for the rights of women and girls and uh one thing i like about uh, our boss in kenya sami moraya 
actually is one of the men, uh, including as well as Mustafa and Bernard. I mean, we have these three men in our office, and I think it starts within that village, within that home, and I consider the office to be like, you know, our home. And already when you see the, the men taking the lead in terms of talking about equality, talking about, uh, you know, supporting girls and women to access education, to participate in elections and uh, in public life, I think for me, that's where it starts. And uh, in Kenya, interestingly, the other day we had uh, a campaign led uh, by men and it's called um, Men and FGM. And we have so many other um, actually uh, um, organizations that are men-led calling for the rights and protection of uh, girls and, uh, and, and, and women. And I think when we have the voice of the man, it's very powerful when a man stands and says, because like in our society, the man is elevated. The man is seen as, you know, the head and the woman is below. So when the voice comes from the man saying that we need to protect girls from female genital mutilation, and we need girls who became mothers allowed back to school, there's power to that. And actually, the society tend to believe it. And that's why I think the more we involve men in this conversation, the more we allow men to join and actually lead this um, process, I think we are really going to achieve a lot because we have really deep-seated, uh, you know, cultural, socioeconomic and historic uh, barriers that are blocking women. And that's why a lot of power, a lot of synergies, a lot of collaboration is required from both men and women to ensure the woman gets to the high table, the woman can access the education and can participate freely in, the, in all uh, spheres of life. Well said. You've been listening to a special International Women's Day presentation here on Moment of Truth. To find out more, visit the Journalists for Human Rights website at jhr.ca. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you tomorrow. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.